as it stands right now, you have more chance of going away for stealing a chicken than for violence against women and children. Hello and welcome to Horsehair Wigs from me, Evelyn McCleverty and Irish Rule of Law International. On this month's show, we're speaking to Sarai Tisala Tempelhoff, a human rights and social justice lawyer. Sarai is the founder of the Gender and Justice Unit in Malawi, an organisation educating women on their legal rights in a hugely patriarchal society. Is it failing women in particular? In many ways. Their challenges are more acute by reason of them being women. But Sarai doesn't believe it's just women who are the victims of the country's criminal justice system. If you're looking at the criminal justice system alone as an issue, then the failure is across the board. The Gender and Justice Unit is a partner organisation on the ground in Malawi with Irish Rule of Law International. It travels to rural communities and helps people access justice in a country with multiple laws but little enforcement. No, I don't believe that the law can change everything, but I do believe that it is a powerful way to send a message about what is and isn't acceptable in our social landscape. Sarai talks about the role of the Gender and Justice Unit in the country, the high rates of child marriage, the prevalence of HIV and the bottom line for women, inequality. And despite being critical of the country's legal system, she is hopeful. If we were actually implementing the laws that we do have on the books and doing so in a fair and in a just manner, and in a manner that people can see the impact of laws, I believe we would have change. And in fact, I don't just believe it, I know it. Delighted to feature a partner of Irish Rule of Law International on the show this month with Sarai Chisala Tempelhoff giving you an insight into the work that's underway in Malawi and the work that needs to be done. When it comes to legal assistance and legal aid, there isn't enough in terms of services for women. Free legal assistance oftentimes focuses on criminal justice issues, so bail and supporting criminal court cases. And women's issues tend to be of a civil nature, divorce, matrimony issues, child support, disinheritance after a spouse dies. And there's just very little on the ground. And so even without the work that we focus on, there is a need, but we focus more than just on legal assistance or legal aid. Legal empowerment is this idea that you can take the law and put it into the hands of those who have the least and that they will be able to use the law to access whether it's justice or gender-related issues, but they would understand it. So it becomes a tool to opening up doors of access for women in particular. And there is no other organization in Malawi that focuses on legal empowerment in the way that we do. The legal empowerment issue is quite important for women and indeed communities at large, given that the legal system is in English, all of the laws are in English, all of the services are provided in English, as I understand it, and yet the majority of the people don't speak English. So where do you see that as being a major problem in access to justice for communities and in particular women? Well, if all the laws are in English, and as you said, many people don't speak English, and even if they do, certainly not to a legal literacy standard. And so they are excluded from the very framework that is structuring their lives. And so with legal empowerment tools that we design and develop at the Gender and Justice Unit, not only do we translate the law, but we also simplify it so that it's understandable. And then beyond the simplification and the translation, we also share information about legal pathways. 
because it's all well and good to know what the law says, to understand the vernacular version of what the law says, if you don't know what processes you need to use in order to you know, activate that law. So it's all well and good to know that there's a provision saying that your, your spouse is supposed to take care of you and your child. Where do you go in order to activate that support? And so what we do in our tools is not only do we provide that translated and simplified version of the law, but we also say, you know, for child maintenance, you'll need to go to the child justice court. You'll need to take money for summons. You'll need to ensure that you serve this document on your spouse. If you can't do that, you can have the court clerk assist you with that. When you go to court, you need to make sure you have all of these documents with you. It's the missing link as far as I see. And it takes the laws out of the very few, the very privileged, and puts it into the hands of people who need it. And interestingly enough, it's not just women who are either impoverished or in the rural areas. Even women in urban areas might not know or have access to this kind of information. And so, in fact, our tools are readily available through our website. We share them on WhatsApp. And I have heard back from people beyond just the communities where we go and do outreach services that it's been very helpful to them. Yeah, you you do have a facility in Lalongwe, the, uh, the capital of Malawi, but then in connection with other partners, including Irish Rule of Law International, as you said, you do travel to communities to educate women on their rights. What kind of cases are you hearing in the community? So we come across a great deal of child pregnancies, underage pregnancies, so rapes of young girls. We also come across quite a number of abandonment cases. So women will set up a home, a family with a man who then just walks out and leaves her. And because of just the country, the way that it's structured and how our systems are just really very new, registrations and so on, there's no way of tracking these men down. So they're just gone. So even if you have a legal system that'll provide you with an order saying that somebody should pay maintenance, if you can't find them, what next? Of course, violence, just a lot of violence, economic violence, physical violence, disinheritance. So this is now violence from the family of your deceased spouse, where they are throwing you out of the house or the home that you own together. In the areas in and around Lilongwe, it's a matrilineal system. So the man is the one who comes to the village and stays at the village of the, of the wife. So the disinheritance issues aren't as much in the areas where we work in Lilongwe, but across the country as a whole, that's a significant challenge still, despite a newer legal system that um, really prioritizes the spouse and the children. We also have found quite a lot of land disputes. I think that ties into broader challenges that we have around land ownership and corruption. We've come across a lot of corruption and the ways in which corruption can be a barrier to accessing justice. If there's a couple and there is a physical altercation between them, and if they go to the local police, because there are police stations quite locally based, if they go to the local police, the man might have the five pounds, five euros, or 5,000 kwacha to bribe the police officer to, to look the other way. And when you ask community members where the court is, the court that they will point you to is their local traditional leaders base. That's the court. Just to make clear to our listeners, so there are kind of two parallel justice systems in Malawi. There's the community justice and then there's obviously the official national justice system. Can you describe what the difference is for our listeners who may not be familiar with this type of justice? Okay, so we do have the country set up 
according to villages, communities, actually the lowest levels of community. So your local community and you live in a village and there will be a headman, head person of that village. And your village will be part of a grouping of villages. That'll be a group village. And there will be a leader again of that group village. And then that group village is part of a traditional authority. So even for electoral purposes, we are divided up as a country in that way. And that traditional justice system is alive and thriving and it's even recognized by the laws. There has even been an attempt to sort of bring the traditional justice system into the formal justice mechanism. At the formal side, you have magistrates and first, second, third grade level magistrates. Then the magistrates, if, you, if a case went through the magistracy, might go on appeal to the high court. You have the high court, the Supreme Court, and you have a constitutional court. So those two justice systems work alongside each other with very specific jurisdiction. There's areas that have been taken out of the traditional justice system by the laws. But interestingly, not all traditional leaders are often aware that they no longer have jurisdiction over some issues. And in some cases, there's been a strong civic education push, and it's been really clear, and you know, the courts know, and the, and the traditional leaders know that this is an issue that you have to take to the police, you have to take to the formal justice mechanism. But for the longest time, if, for example, we're talking of domestic violence, the traditional leaders would only refer someone to the police if there was blood involved. So all the range of violence that might be there, if there was no blood shed during the incident, it would be regarded as something that could be discussed within the community, amongst your marriage counselors, or by the traditional leader himself, and not necessarily something that needs to be reported to the police. So things that go to the police would then automatically be streamed through the formal justice system. Things that go to the traditional leader and he doesn't refer to the police would not automatically go through the through the formal justice mechanism. And how are the community justice leaders elected? What's the process there? It's a chieftaincy, so it's by birth. Can you maybe describe in general, what kind of a landscape is it for women? How is it structured in terms of equality? You know, Malawi as a country is one of those countries where we have, I call it a fetish with the law and legislation. Whenever we have a problem, we're like, well, we need a piece of legislation to to address that problem. And so we have a fabulous body of laws and really beautiful policies, very beautiful to look at, but absolutely no bite. We have a Gender Equality Act. We have a Prevention of Domestic Violence Act. We have a brand new wills and inheritance legislation. So there's a whole body of gender-related laws. The reality is that women don't have access to finances. They are dependent upon men. If not men, then their families. Um, the traditional ways of marriage and marriages being, you know, the end of the marriage or challenges within the marriage being dealt with, all of that is done in a very much a patriarchal manner, a manner that favors men. And this is through all layers of society. The inequalities that are there show up when you look at how so many women are married in our country before they reach the age of 18. Those aren't even women, those are girls. And that are, are automatically just leads to a knock-on effect. When a young girl is pregnant, she's considered to be an adult. And even though we have a policy now that says that girls who drop out of school because of pregnancy should be allowed back into their schools, those are often primary schools. And the minute that a girl has had a child, the community members, other children, all look at her as an adult. She's treated as an adult. So just to make it clear, child marriage is actually illegal in the country, but is quite high in terms of the figures. The NGO Girls Not Brides has said that Malawi has the 12th highest child marriage rate in the world. 
And in, in 2020, the figures that we, we have here, this amounted to 46% of girls married before turning 18. And as you said, they have to drop out of school when they're pregnant. They can go back to school after their term and after they've given birth. But the reality is that many, many don't. No, they don't. And it becomes an intergenerational cycle, you know. And so sometimes parents will support these illegal marriages because that's like one less mouth that I have to feed. It's one less responsibility on an already fractured and stressed out family. I remember this one chief, one traditional leader, where she said, you know, these women come to me and then they bring their daughters and they say, well, you've taken them out of this marriage. Now you feed them. You look after them. And as you said, marriage is seen as a way of getting out of that economic depravity. I know that during COVID as well, not just in Malawi, but a lot of countries, um, there was quite a hike in actually the instances of, of child marriage. Because of this reason, a lot of families didn't feel like it was worth educating their children, especially when maybe the schools weren't ongoing and there was no sign of them reopening and felt, well, actually, yeah, we'll just marry you off. And as you said, it's one less mouth to feed. Yeah, I mean, it's dire and it's grim, but it's the reality of so many families. Um, and it's this intersectional, you know, a lack of access to good education, a lack of financing for the home, a father that maybe has abandoned the home, lack of options for the home. When we go into the communities where we work, the first question we ask when we got there is like, what are your legal challenges? And the first response that we got from almost all of them is that the young people have nothing to do. We would ask them, what legal issues are you facing? And they said, the young people have nothing to do. Can you build a community center for us here or something so that you can occupy their time, you can occupy their days, you can give them some kind of hope? Sari, I don't know if you're familiar with the crime infanticide, the act of deliberately killing a child who is younger than one. Irish Rule of Law International is heavily involved in a lot of cases where women are accused of this crime. Many, in fact, of these women, the the child died naturally or the women may have been forced to get rid of the child due to, as we've been talking about, economic or societal pressures, or indeed they may have mental health challenges. And these are never really addressed. A lot of these women end up in prison for multiple years without ever their cases going before a court and they don't seem to have any sort of representation. Is it a significant problem? How do you see it? What's your your experience of this? I have heard about the infanticide law. I know of the law, of course, and I have come across a few of those cases through Irish Rule of Law International, particularly because of their work in the prison systems and this incidence of women being, being jailed for infanticide and them working on bail applications Um, With infanticide, I think you're often going to find that it's rural women, women who don't have access to a lawyer, don't have access to health services, don't have access perhaps to uh, sexual reproductive health resources. And those are who you're going to find being swept up with provisions like those. I think the challenge that we have is our criminal justice system is overwhelmed. We have cases coming in the system where people don't have the access to the legal aid that they need. And so oftentimes the intervention of a legal aid lawyer will make the whole difference between you spending two years on remand, which is waiting for your case to come before the courts, or going home with a bail sentence, or getting a mental health um, specialist to give you an evaluation and present the courts with an evaluation of your mental condition, and thereby perhaps an explanation of something that happened. 
as with other countries where you have these laws like infanticide, sometimes it's miscarriages. But because we have health centers that may not be equipped to do the necessary assessments, and again, that missing link of a legal assistance to go and get that health assessment to provide the court with an assessment of why did the baby die? What happened? Even in big high profile cases, I think in the whole country we have two pathologists. So two people in all of Malawi who are qualified to tell you about how and why somebody died. They're not in the rural area. They're not in far off places. And so if there's a death, the assumption is that somebody caused that death deliberately. Do you believe that in a way that the state is failing women with the level of investment it has in its legal services? Is it failing women in particular? In many ways, their challenges are more acute by reason of them being women. The system as a whole is not working for anybody. You still have, we have desperately overcrowded prisons, people going away for the most minor of offenses. If you're looking at the criminal justice system alone as an issue, then the failure is across the board. For me, I think where the failure that impacts women in particular is in the civil justice processes that we've put in place. So for example, we have protection orders that were designed into our Prevention of Domestic Violence Act. Beautiful, great. But when you get a protection order, the police will not enforce it unless you go back to court to get an order demanding that the police arrest the person who's assaulting you. And I've been at a police station with a woman. We had gotten her protection order. This man was actually threatening to assault myself and the other lawyer who actually works at Irish Rule of Law International right now. He was it threatening us within the police presence. And they were like, well, there's nothing we can do about this unless you go get another order from the courts demanding his arrest. So just that, I don't know, for me, legal empowerment provides somewhat of a bridge. I feel like the more that people know about the laws, the more that they're able to do with them and about them. But I also feel like our laws sometimes are not very responsive to the realities of our communities and that law isn't always the vehicle for social change. You're listening to Horsehair Wigs with me, Evelyn McCleverty, and Irish Rule of Law International. On the show this month, we're speaking to Sarai Chisala Templehoff, the founder of the Gender and Justice Unit in Malawi, a partner organisation of Irish Rule of Law International. This podcast is brought to you by Irish Rule of Law International and is funded by Irish Aid. Back now to the conversation this month with human rights and social justice lawyer Sarai Chisala Templehoff who picks up the discussion by talking about the prevalence of AIDS in Malawi, where an estimated 1.1 million people live with HIV and where there are over 770,000 orphaned children, mainly due to AIDS. I believe a strong part of it is the inequalities that exist between men and women. And then violence, just levels of violence that are unbelievable. When you start from child marriage all the way through to after a woman dies, you know, We talk about in our work how women or girls experience violence as children. They then experience violence in their marriages. And then when they are married off or if they choose to marry, they don't even have control over where they're buried. That's something that's decided by the family of the husband. So it's this sort of life cycle of violence. And I think because of that, it means that there's an inability to negotiate safer sex or there still is this challenge of transactional sex. And what that means is that a lot of young girls remain vulnerable to HIV transmission because of their lack of access to resources. My work around HIV and AIDS was really advocacy against some certain provisions in the then bill, now law, provisions that really criminalized transmission. And I was extremely vocal about this because 
the way that those provisions had been crafted at that time. If you knew about your status, then you had criminal intent almost automatically. So living with HIV was almost a crime in and of itself. And the first person to know about their status is women. Women go to the hospital, women are pregnant. They get tested almost immediately when they're pregnant and they would be the ones who knew about their status first and then they would be accused of bringing HIV into the family. And now there was going to be a law that was solidifying that approach. And so that was my main challenge with the bill at that time. The way that it's crafted, even though it sounds like it's to protect women, it actually isn't. And I think what was exciting about the work at that time was we had spoken with politicians and legislators, policymakers, and we'd had this conversation over and over again. And it was the same people, the same talking heads sitting around the table, you know, having this conversation in different settings. And I realized that the community that was most affected by this, they hadn't been given really a strong voice at that table. And so we changed tactics. We went and worked through COLA, an incredible organization still doing so much good work in Malawi around women living with HIV and AIDS. And we spoke to their members who were already keen, alert, and active women who were working to support other women living with HIV. And we talked them through the bill, provision by provision, the content and the implications of every single provision, and even provisions that they originally thought about as being protective. For example, provisions around taking your medication when you're pregnant, which would criminalize if you did not take your medication when you're pregnant. They stood up and they spoke to these parliamentarians and they're like, before you care about this baby that I've got in my womb, I care about this baby. I don't need a criminal provision to tell me to take my medication. And that was pivotal and was really powerful. They spoke truth to power and all of those problematic provisions that would have seen women, mainly women, criminalized were taken out. And what we have now in the law is a law that talks about the protections that are there, that talks about the times when you can reveal somebody's status. Yeah, that basically sets up the National HIV and AIDS Commission. I think in that case, that was definitely a win. I don't know if that law is necessary because our policies move so much faster and our policies are far more responsive to the realities on the ground. So whilst we still have laws that criminalize homosexuality or men having sex with men, that's still criminalized in our laws. Our policies, especially our HIV-related policies, recognize the need to provide men who have sex with men with condoms so that you can prevent the spread of HIV. So again, it's a social issue that I don't think the law is very well equipped to deal with. Of all of the, the problems and issues that we've addressed over the course of the conversation, you seem to be very clear about the fact that it's not legislation that's going to, to tackle any of the problems that we've discussed. Given how poor the, the country is, what, what else do you see as answers to a lot of these deeply ingrained societal issues that seem to be enabling this level of inadequacies and discriminations and injustice? You know, much as I don't see the law as the answer, I am also a lawyer. And that's the tool that I have in my toolbox. So I'm going to leave the behavior change and the social change to the experts at those. But when I look at laws and I imagine and I think about the potential that the law holds, because much as it isn't the answer, there is the potential. And where that potential lies is in actually implementing the laws that we do have in place. So alongside the behavior change, the social change, the creation of social networks and you know social security and all of that, if we were actually implementing the laws that we do have on the books and doing so in a fair and in a just manner, and in a manner that people can see 
the impact of laws, I believe we would have change. And in fact, I don't just believe it, I know it. And one of the ways that we work is with legal clinics, but also mobile courts. When people are able to see that somebody who assaults a woman can be arrested by the police for that assault, that that case can go before a judicial officer and have a sentence come out of it, that there are actual legal repercussions for assaulting another person and assaulting a girl, assaulting a child, assaulting a woman. People do less of that. It isn't the most sophisticated, it isn't the most finessed or nuanced way of bringing about change. It is brutal, but it is real. And many times, women who are in relationships that are violent and that are desperate, they actually don't want their husband to go to prison, but they do want him to be told that what he's doing is wrong. Having a legal system that works tells people that it is wrong. It is wrong to violate another human being. It is wrong to violate a girl, a boy, a child. It is wrong. So no, I don't believe that the law can change everything, but I do believe that it is a powerful way to send a message about what is and isn't acceptable in our social landscape. As it stands right now, you have more chance of going away for stealing a chicken than for violence against women and children. That could change. That should change. We already have the legal system in place. We already have the laws in place. What I do want to see is when those laws are, are being implemented, that there is justice for all, that somebody who has been arrested has a chance at a fair trial, that they're not going away on remand for endless years and being forgotten about and thrown into a prison. And so that brokenness at all levels of the system is a challenge for the whole the whole system. I wanted to lastly, Sarai, before we finish up looking at climate change and how it's impacting various different countries. And I was reading that um, the country is considered highly vulnerable to the effects of the climate. And indeed, Cyclone Freddy, which hit the country in 2023, killed hundreds and displaced more than 500,000 people, 65% of those being women. And we see globally that, you know, agriculture is being affected and as I mentioned there, it is resulting in a lot of displacement. Do you have any experience of this? We have seen that the vulnerability is severe. We already had a road system that needed to be improved. And Cyclone Freddy has taken us decades back with the further destruction of our infrastructure. And that, of course, has a knock-on effect. If the infrastructure is not there, if women are farming, they don't have access to their markets. It has had an impact on electrification, which was already, again, not adequate for the whole country. We've seen that it's devastating. And the, the impact on women and girls and, and children in particular was horrific, horrific. Not only the impact in terms of displacement, but the emotional burden of responding to so many deaths, so much disruption, so much destruction in their communities. And at the same time, we are seeing the continuous degradation of our forestry and we don't yet have solutions to cooking and heating. And these are the challenges that women face. These challenges bring women in direct conflict with security forces that have been put in place to protect the forests as they should. But again, we, we see women and girls being physically abused and harassed because of attempting to collect firewood for their daily warming needs. As the Gender and Justice Unit, we haven't started working on climate change, but it is more and more evident that we have no choice but to, because the communities that we serve are being put under immense pressure 
because of our changing climate. And so we need to recalibrate and, and think about how the work that we do can be used to empower communities to protect and preserve what they do have as resources, because that will have the impact on their lives and their livelihood and their safety. So I thank you for joining us on the program today. It was really great to talk to you. Thank you for having me. I really look forward to a continued and incredible relationship with Irish Rule of Law International. I should thank them. They have been great partners who have been really open to enabling us to do our work in the way that we see fit. And I think that's something extremely powerful from a donor, that they become a partner and not just a provider. And that was Sarai Chisala Tempelhoff, a human rights and social justice lawyer and founder of Malawi's Gender and Justice Unit. That's it for Horsehair Wigs this month. From me, Evelyn McCafferty, and Irish Rule of Law International, take good care. <laughs>